History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Okay, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this would have fighting power. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. Turning points are what make the history we remember. Whether they're small, personal ones or big, grand ones, really, what story are we going to remember without some life-changing aspect? One of the biggest turning points in man's history comes from the adoption of new religions, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. We're now in the 200s, 300s CE. The early Christian church is growing and spreading, But at the same time, there's another church that puts itself in competition, calls itself Christian, but was founded by Simon Magus and took the name of Christianity. It replaced the teachings of Christ with teachings that stem from the Babylonian mystery religion and used Christ's sacrifice as an excuse to break the law. This false church headquartered itself in Rome, and it began to infiltrate the early Christian church. It even kicked out the Apostle John and his followers. It was war a war for survival for those holding to the teachings of Christ, and a war of extinction for the followers of Simon Magus. They wanted it to blot all of it out. And like I said, they were based in Rome, and their doctrines were especially popular in the western part of the Roman Empire. But they would eventually spread all over the Roman world and be called the Catholic Church. Now the followers of Christ and his apostles the true church of God, were located mainly in Asia Minor at this time. And you can tell the difference between the two churches based on the doctrines they taught. If they line up with the Bible, then you know it's the true church. This church was keeping the Sabbath and Passover, and that was really some of the major distinguishing doctrines between the two. Now the others, they were claiming to follow Christ. You have the Catholics, you have a lot of other factions though, located at the center of the Roman Empire and holding a monopoly on church history like we covered in the last episode. The bishops of Rome began to control and bring in all these other churches into agreement with them. One of the major tools they used were donations. They were a wealthy church, but Roman help came with strings attached. And because they were in Rome, they were one of the wealthiest churches. And the earlier popes even used the proximity to all these senators and wealthy families to build political connections with prominent Roman leaders. They used whatever power they could to gain dominance and did it from the start. Paul Johnson writes in his A History of Christianity, even before this stage, however, there's evidence that Rome was using its position as the imperial capital to influence the church and other centers and thus to build up a case history of successful intervention. The first such instance of which we have record is Clement's letter to the Corinthians, where Clement weighs in on the side of established order. There are other second century cases, usually on what seem like marginal issues, cultic practices, 
the date of Easter, and so forth. Rome was appealed to as the best apostolic authority and responded eagerly. End quote. Now remember this is referring to the Roman church founded by Simon Magus, not the Roman congregation of the true church followers founded by Paul. We don't hear much or anything really after the history recorded in the Bible about that congregation, which is probably a bad sign about what happened to them in connection to the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church claimed they were founded by Simon Peter and Paul. But in the last episode, we show how they were really founded by Simon Magus. But it was a powerful lie with no biblical proof, and it came with great advantage. Johnson writes, quote, Rome profited not only from its apostolic foundation, but from its associations as the capital of the empire. It was the standard for faith, ritual, organization, textual accuracy, and general Christian practice. It was the first Christian church to eliminate minority tendencies and present a homogenous front to the world. From there, it was a natural development for Rome to probe into the affairs of other churches with the view of assisting the victory of the Orthodox, that is, Roman, element. Moreover, Rome had an excellent excuse for such interference. From the earliest times, it had assisted small and struggling churches with money. This was charity, but charity increasingly with a purpose. With Roman money, there went a gentle but persistent pressure to conform to Roman standards. End quote. So you see how Rome was working to gain a bigger following within all these churches, using its wealth to deliberately buy influence and power using its history there or the history it claimed to gain more credibility with other churches now dissenting factions were definitely a problem for the catholic church and its drive to unite so-called christianity under its rule but in all these cases when they really drive for unity the church that bore the brunt of their attack was the true church of god now, as I discussed in the last episode, the history of the true church was wiped out starting at around 70 CE. And so it becomes very difficult to learn about the true church, and we can see that its effectiveness has dropped. But we do get glimpses of it here and there. And that's because when the true church comes into the record, it's normally challenging the Roman church at a specific point of doctrine. And you look at the doctrine and you know, because that doctrine is founded in the Bible and is typically the Sabbath and Passover doctrines, that it is the true church. Who else could it be? No other church was holding on to those teachings of Christ and the example of apostles. And one of the best examples, like I said, you see that is with the Passover. Now, the churches in the West had established Easter Sunday as the memorial for Christ's resurrection there. They stopped keeping the Passover God's church in the East, though, continued to observe the Passover. In 120 CE, Pope Sixtus officially replaces Passover observance with Easter. Now, he still allows Christians to keep the Passover, but in Rome, they're going to observe Easter. And those who wanted to be in good favor with Rome needed to follow suit. This became known as the Quarto Decimon Controversy. The 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica says this about that controversy. Quote, there is no indication of the observance of Easter festival in the New Testament or in the writings of the apostolic fathers. The first Christians continued to observe the Jewish festivals, though in a new spirit as commemorations of events, which those festivals had foreshadowed. 
Thus, the Passover, with a new conception added to it of Christ as the true Paschal Lamb and the first fruits from the dead, continued to be observed. End quote. So you can see the difference in the source of these doctrines. It's obvious to anyone looking at it. And you see at this time period a direct disciple of Apostle John challenging Rome on this violation of God's commandment. It was about 30 years later. And his name is Polycarp. He presided over the true church of God and was based in Smyrna. And he, fighting for biblical truth, travels to Rome to discuss with a pope, this time Pope Anicetus, in 159, about this doctrine. The encyclopedia continues, quote, Generally speaking, the Western churches kept Easter on the first day of the week, while the Eastern churches kept Passover on the 14th day. Polycarp, the disciple of St. John the Evangelist and Bishop of Smyrna, visited Rome in 159 to confer with Anicetus, the bishop of that see, on that subject, and urged the tradition which he had received from the apostle of observing the 14th day. End quote. So Polycarp was bold. He laid down some irrefutable proof, but the Pope would not stop his heresy. It was good politics for the Pope. Easter was a pagan festival with Christ's name pasted on, and it would be a lot easier for new converts to accept that than to observe a holy day considered to be Jewish. Polycarp, after this debate, left in peace. Still, he was troubled by this, and he was recorded as saying, quote, Oh, good God, to what times have you spared me that I must suffer such things? End quote. It was clear to him the truth would be buried by Rome. He was martyred shortly after. Gerald Fleury writes about this in his The True History of the True Church of God book. Quote, Tradition tells us that Polycarp was more than 80 years old when he confronted Anicetus. He returned to Smyrna, where he endured continued persecution from the Roman government. He suffered continual isolation from the churches in Rome, but he would not change doctrine. Though he was an old man, he fought vigorously against doctrinal heresy. Polycarp was arrested shortly after this confrontation and burned alive for failing to worship Caesar. End quote. These were dangerous times for true Christians. Later popes strengthened their authority and forced conformity, and the controversy continued, but in a different spirit. In 190, there is no longer toleration of Passover, and this gets the true Church of God back in the historical record. The Pope is Victor I, and he begins to excommunicate all those still hanging on to the Passover observance. Polycarp's successor, Polycrates, leads the true Church of God from Asia Minor, and he refuses to bow down to papal dictate. He confronts Victor. Fleury writes, quote, Victor wanted to enforce Easter worship. Polycrates refuses to give in and held firm to Passover observance, end quote. And you have a bit of the record of the confrontation, which comes from the encyclopedia again, quote, We, for our part, keep the day Passover scrupulously, without addition or subtraction. For in Asia, great luminaries sleep, who shall rise again on the day of the Lord's advent, when he is coming with glory from heaven and shall search out all his saints. He listed several of God's people, Flurry writes, who had already died, including Philip, the Apostle John, and Polycarp. Quote, All of these kept the 14th day of the month in accordance with the gospel, not deviating in the least, but following the rule of the faith. End quote. And then it continues. So I, my friends, after spending 65 years in the Lord's service and conversing with Christians from all parts of the world and going carefully through all Holy Scripture, am not scared of threats. Better people than I have said, we must obey God rather than men. End quote. 
that's the record of the confrontation. And after this, you lose a lot of that history. The war goes on, and the true church becomes more persecuted and more obscure. But outside the church, the Romans and the pagans, they didn't see it that way. To them, the Catholic church and the true church was the same. They were Christians, and they treated them the same. And I'll do my best to differentiate when I'm referring to the two churches. And I'll generally lump in all the non-true Christians as Catholic, although I realize there's different factions. At first, Rome treated those who took the name of Christ the same as it treated any other religious sect. Christians, after all, were taught to pay taxes. Jesus Christ himself taught that. They were taught to pray for government authorities. They did so. And so for the most part, they were left alone in the beginning. But even from the start, there was a prejudice against Christians and Catholics. In 180, we have an anti-Catholic and Christian writer recording that they were, quote, people ignorant of learning, unlettered and unskilled in the meanest arts. They were a gang of discredited and proscribed desperados formed from the lowest dregs of the population, ignorant men and credulous women, end quote. I got that quote from Paul Johnson's book, and he's quoting the same writer there who concludes his statement with this. These conspirators must be utterly destroyed and cursed. So there was a prejudice there, even though there was some tolerance at the time. Now, the one thing the true Christians and the Catholics agreed on was that they would not compromise on emperor worship. They refused to worship the emperor, which was part of the official state religion, though and Rome demanded it. To them, if you weren't going to worship the emperor, it looked like treason. They also refused to serve in the Rome's military there. And so, for the Roman government, it looked really hard to see how Christians could be good citizens and strengthen the empire if they wouldn't rally behind the emperor. They wouldn't fight. So that made them stand out. And any time there was some kind of failure or disaster, true Christians and Catholics, they were the scapegoats and persecuted. Tertullian, an early and prolific Catholic author, writes at this time, quote, If the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile fails to rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or the earth does, if there's famine or plague, the cry is at once, the Christians to the lion, end quote. The Tiber was a river that flowed through Rome, so he's talking about city flooding. Nero, Emperor Nero, was probably the most famous of the early persecutors. And from his time on in the 60s, there was a Roman law that basically branded Christianity as a capital offense. Now, how vigorously this law was enforced was up to the emperors, and some really did, especially if there are some so-called Christians involved in rebellion. They really did whenever they were facing barbarian invasions. Basically, any time the government was weak, needed a show of unity with a good dose of emperor worship, it persecuted the Christians and the Catholics. There were some brutal periods in that too. But by 200, it becomes a lot harder for the emperors to stay tolerant. The Catholics especially were growing in numbers. And Tertullian points this out too. He points out they were so numerous that they could really cause some trouble to the Romans if they wanted to. Quote, We are but of yesterday, and we feel everything you have, cities, 
tenements, forts, towns, exchanges, yes, and camps, tribes, palace, senate forum. All we leave you with are the temples. End quote. It was getting popular, and the Roman government was facing a problem with this. And they concluded it either has to be accepted or eliminated. In 250, the Roman emperor Decius at the time chooses to eliminate and persecutes those Catholics and true Christians systematically. The Roman Empire was under a severe strain at the point, facing invasion. It suffered some military defeats, and so it persecuted. He eventually calls it off, but once again, you have some brutal periods here. Johnson points out that after this wave of persecution, you have a reversal in public mood towards Christianity. Before, the mobs would call for Christian persecution, and the government would respond to it for the most part. But now, the public begins to criticize the persecution, and the state is acting alone in its hostility. So you see a shift in mindset. And there was a lot of instability going on in the Roman Empire at the time. It was basically anarchy. Enemies from all around the empire were attacking and sapping its strength. The military would appoint emperors at will, oftentimes assassinating those they didn't like. And it was just after one of those assassinations and periods of anarchy that the military hails a new emperor. It's 284. He was the son of a freedman from the Balkans. And after taking this position, he calls himself Diocletian. Diocletian was a political genius. He took a waning empire, breathed life right back into it. He turned things around. Here's how Will Durant puts it in his volume, Caesar and Christ. Quote, He had ended a half century of anarchy, had reestablished government and law, had restored stability to industry and security to trade, had tamed Persia and stilled the barbarians, and despite a few murders, had been, all in all, a sincere legislator and a just judge. End quote. You could say he made the Roman Empire great again. But he did it with harsh methods in ways that would put him squarely in conflict with Christians and Catholics. At the time, his methods were accepted, though, because of just how dangerous it was. The needs of war demanded a more centralized empire. First, he reorganizes the empire. He divides it in half, takes the eastern half for himself, and gives the west to a new emperor named Maximian. He abandons Rome as the capital puts his headquarters in Asia Minor, just south of Byzantium, the famous city that later become the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Maximian moves his capital from Rome as well and puts it in northern Italy in Milan. And this was a big deal. It was the beginning of the end for the city of Rome's political dominance in the empire. The city will always be powerful politically, but only in symbol, not in reality. The Senate was still there. The consuls kept their titles and rituals. The games continued, but the leadership had now moved. And the wealth was fading rapidly. Rome was in decay. And from a military perspective, it was pretty much impossible to coordinate any kind of defense against this vast empire with the city so far south of the Alps where most of the action is going on. So this is what Diocletian did. He gives them both the title of Augustus. 
and then each Augustus selects another emperor titled Caesar, and that Caesar would aid the Augustus and then succeed the Augustus. Diocletian selects a man named Galerius to help him in the east, and Maximian appoints Constantius. The emperors, both the Augusti and Caesars, were married into each other's families as a way to strengthen the bond. Now, with hindsight, this looks brilliant, but it's also absolutely terrible. Putting yourself in a position where you can see someone trying to come to terms with governing this massive empire without all the technology we have today, how do you keep it together? At this point in the empire, there's no unifying factor anymore. It was pretty much kept together purely by force. And for centuries, powerful generals would use their armies, take the throne... And so the problem becomes, well, how do you keep powerful generals from doing this? If they're ambitious enough, what's there to stop them? The empire was so large, it was just easy for competing warlords to make their own claims. And so Diocletian thought to solve this by splitting it. It helped improve communication, logistics, they could respond to threats quicker. You could say it was like pre-selecting the warlords, putting them into the system calling them emperors, and that was his solution. And it wasn't just internal threats either. The West at this point is facing invasions all up and down its borders from Germans. They're getting some pressure from the Huns. Even with a great road system, it would just take too long for news of attacks to travel to Rome. And it's not like this system was 100% successful during Diocletian's reign. There was one commander who declared himself emperor in Britain and northern Gaul. He kept Maximian away from retaking control for seven years. Some storms wiped out Maximian's army, so he had the weather to thank for that. But that guy was assassinated by his treasurer in three years. That guy held on until finally the Romans brought him to heel. So it wasn't 100%, but it was better. In addition to all this, there was a split in the Roman Empire. The eastern provinces were much wealthier more urban, focused on trade. The Western Empire was rural and poorer. And with this natural divide, the loyalties were very hard to transfer between East and West. So instead, Diocletian makes it part of the system once again, splits it in two. He didn't have a son, so that was another problem he was trying to solve. And that's a hard problem. Who isn't going to want to put their son in succession of them. And even if you look at the system as a whole, what's to stop the Augustus, the Caesar, any one of them from taking more power? I really don't think there's a way to solve this. The split had some interesting consequences that apply to our series here on Charlemagne. We'll get there. Don't worry. Most notably, it weakens the imperial control of the city of Rome. And by doing that, the Roman Catholic Church actually gets more freedom to exert itself. It can resist imperial control easier because the capital has been moved. But that's down the road. For now, Diocletian and his rulers, they're absolute. Their edicts become law. They don't have any need of the Senate. And the government officials were appointed by them. Diocletian creates a huge bureaucracy around the state. And... This is all part of him reviving this empire here. He did everything he could to fortify his position. He actually further developed emperor worship in 
emperor worship had been going on since Augustus, the first Augustus's reign, the first emperor. And it wasn't a Roman tradition. It was actually an Eastern tradition that they brought over. It's something you'd see in Egypt or in Persia years before. But it was useful for the emperor to maintain power and prestige of the office. Now, 250 years later, Diocletian brings it to an all-new level, turns it up a notch, makes it even more personal. He is the embodiment of the Roman god Jupiter. That's how Durant puts it. He says, Diocletian came down from heaven to restore order on earth. But Diocletian's methods were anything but heavenly. Durant writes, quote, Confronted by enemies on every side, the Roman state did what all nations must do in crucial wars. It accepted the dictatorship of a strong leader, taxed itself beyond tolerance, and put individual liberty aside until collective liberty was secured. End quote. And really, has any absolute ruler ever acted differently? Individual liberty always gets pushed down. What choice did he have anyway? Put yourself in his position. It's either absolute power or a fractured empire. And worse, if he chose to keep individual liberties going, he would most likely be dead, as someone else not afraid to take absolute power would kill him and take control of the empire. That's the choice confronting leaders over and over, isn't it? Remember, there are European leaders today championing Charlemagne as a symbol of unity, and yet Charlemagne chose unity through violence as well. Now, there is one obstacle in the way of absolute rule for these Augusti. Galerius pointed it out to Diocletian that a complete restoration of the Roman Empire required full restoration of the Roman gods. But that's something the Christians would not submit to. And the new government needed to have a unified and supportive religion. Now, Diocletian is a political genius, so he was hesitating to crush a certain portion of his population as he's trying to unify everybody. There was a moment, though, in 302, when during an imperial sacrifice, some Catholics were present, made the sign of the cross to ward off the demons in the ceremony. This kind of conduct shows you once again that these Catholics aren't following the teachings of the Bible because it's not found in the Bible. When the religious officials couldn't find the marks in the sacrifice that they hoped to see in the livers of the animals they slaughtered, they blamed the presence of these Christians, these unbelievers, for that problem. Diocletian sees the problem, orders all that's in attendance to offer sacrifice to Roman gods or be flogged. And that all the soldiers should conform to that too as well. So in 302, you can see Diocletian's coming around. February 303, he finally yields to Galerius on this issue and the four rulers decree that Christian churches must be destroyed. Christian books must be burned. Christian property should be confiscated and Christian assemblies be dissolved and those trying to assemble be put to death. Remember, this is affecting Christians and Catholics. In September, Diocletian orders imprisoned Christians who had worshipped Roman gods be released and those who still refused be subjected to every torture known to Rome. When those taking the name of Christ resisted, he directed provincial magistrates to seek them out and use any method to break them. 
So that was Diocletian, one of the four rulers, Constantius, who ruled in Gaul, modern-day France today. He burned a few churches and left it at that. Galerius, on the other hand, he did everything he could in the east to crush them. Maximian carried it out. Typical Roman brutality and efficiency. Now, this persecution, as all of them before, hits both the true church and the Catholics. Durant says about 1,500 Christians died. Christians, meaning those who take the name of Christ and true Christians. Tradition says that the Bishop of Rome actually denied his faith under torture. So some capitulated there. But most stood firm and the persecution failed to eradicate the Christians, both the true ones and the false. And there were some nasty accounts of what they had to endure, the usual beheadings, crucifixions, beatings that led to death, but on top of that, accounts of some of their flesh being cut off bit by bit and fed to animals, men being fed alive to starving animals, some having molten lead poured down their throats. So it was brutal. But in the end, the Christians and the Catholics won. The overwhelming majority kept their religion. And it was a victory that launched this minority religion, true and false, to the forefront. Durant writes, quote, The Diocletian persecution was the greatest test and triumph of the church. There's no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiply quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. End quote. Christ won. But whose Christ was it? There many so-called Christians preaching something different. And that becomes a key question to answer for the Roman government later. But it's 305 now, and Diocletian resigns. He forces Maximian to resign as well. And that's rare to see. Someone giving up power like that? Ruling the Roman Empire, though, is no easy task. And Diocletian could look at that title and at recent history and no, life expectancy for an emperor was less than the natural going rate at the time. So you get the feeling that he wanted to live out the rest of his life in peace, and he did it in luxury. But when Diocletian abdicates, the system he creates is going to face an enormous test. Gallerus succeeds him, appoints two new Caesars, and rules in the east, while Constantius ruled the west. Once again, you see why the system has flaws. So Galerius is appointing these guys, looking to cement some real authority. He wants to control the system and make sure that as many of those emperors would be under his sway. And you see that in the way he appoints them. He appoints two men who are loyal to him. One is a relative, Maximinus Daza or Daya, and the other, named Severus, was a high-ranking military officer and a longtime friend. Severus is technically under the power of Constantius, but you get the idea of what Gallery is trying to do here. He wants to make his power base firm. And then, because life rarely cooperates, Gallery's plan falls apart when Constantius dies in 306. Constantius's legions, 
the same legions keeping the Roman Empire alive in the West here, fighting all the barbarians, they declare his son, Constantine, as emperor. This makes Galerius mad. It's a direct challenge to him. It's a blow to the system Diocletian created. One of the two Caesars should have been made in Augustus. This wasn't supposed to be hereditary. But he was in a tough spot. He needs those legions. They're keeping the Roman Empire alive in the West. And so he allows Constantine to become emperor. Who is Constantine? Well, he was Constantius's illegitimate son, born from a barmaid in Bithynia. And Constantius was forced by Diocletian to put away Constantine's mother so he could marry into the families of one of the Caesars or Augustus. Remember, they marry in to keep the system bound tighter. And then to further bind Constantius to Diocletian, Diocletian takes Constantine as hostage, takes him to his court, where he's educated, he becomes a brave military officer. After Diocletian abdicates, Galerius continues to hold him as hostage, but Constantine escapes and joins his father. He proves to be a great leader in battle, Lots of energy, exactly what these guys need. And so the Legion just falls in love with this guy. When his father dies, the Gallic army calls him Caesar and Augustus. Now, Galerius makes him a Caesar, still an emperor. But now you have a precedent set. And this is when things get crazy because it inspires imitators. And you have an imitator coming from the city of Rome. Now, remember... The capitals of these empires had moved away from Rome. And when that happened, the political power of the city just dropped. It also dropped for some very powerful elements in it, like the Praetorian Guard. This is the emperor's personal bodyguard. But when the emperor left the city, the bodyguard pretty much has no purpose anymore. And these are troops that range from size of several thousand, 10,000 strong. These were the guys in the times of anarchy assassinating emperors. They even have an account where they actually auction off the throne for money. So you can see why Diocletian moved away from these guys. In 306, Galerius actually tries to completely disband them. He's trying to tax the Roman city with some more taxes, and they just had enough. They revolt. They pick a Caesar, a man named Maxentius the son-in-law to Galerius, and the son of Maximian, that still living Augustus previous to Constantius. So you have another hereditary claim. Maxentius accepts. And so you have three emperors in the West now. Severus, who's in northern Italy, Milan. Constantine, who's up in Gaul and Maxentius in Italy. That's a lot of people to keep track of. But you have five emperors now. Now Think about what kind of environment this leads to. You put five people in an arena for battle to control the Roman Empire, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, you know it's going to lead to war. And the guy that comes out on top of that battle arena... Well, he's going to be one very ambitious and successful general, isn't he? A guy you don't want to cross. 
Now in this time period, there's some intrigue. Max Inches, he wants to be recognized officially like Constantine was, but Galerius refuses. He's had enough of this hereditary stuff. He doesn't want the example to continue. And, you know, at least Constantine had the loyalty of some important armies. So he could at least explain to all his constituents back home why he had to do that with Constantine. But he said no to Maxentius. Maxentius didn't even have an army. So Galerius orders Severus to quell it. 307, Severus takes a large Roman army from northern Italy, marches down to Rome, and when he reaches the Roman city, the troops leave him. They go to Maxentius. That's because they were loyal to Maxentius' father, Maximian. Also helps Maxentius paid them off. But you see at the point at this point that uh, loyalty from your army is key if you're going to be ruling as emperor. Without one, you didn't even have a chance. Now, Maxentius survives, and to make matters even more complicated, his father Maximian, the guy that these troops were loyal to, he comes out of retirement to support his son. He's an emperor again. <laughs> we have a lot of people in this game here. Severus knows a lost cause when he sees it, and he retreats, surrendering on the promise that his life would be spared. His life was spared for a brief moment of time, and he just gets murdered. Maxentius takes the name Augustus, which was now vacant, and rules with his father, Maximian. Galerius at this point has to personally take care of this problem. He takes another Roman army into Italy to settle the matter. Thanks to Maxentius promising large sums of money and Italy's loyalty to Maximian, he's forced to retreat as well, with some of his own troops going to the other side. So you still have five emperors. Constantine in the west, Maxentius and Maximian in the west as well. Galerius in the east, and his relative Maximian Daza. Five. Now, from the beginning, Maximian in Italy was working with Constantine to get him to support Maxentius. He was marrying off his daughter to Constantine for political recognition. He offers, you know what, I'm going to call you Augustus. Constantine agrees, but he only gives token support. He's trying to play the system here. He doesn't want to break completely away with Galerius. In 308, the co-rulership between Maximian and Maxentius, his son, it falls apart. He actually tries to depose him. He fails, and Maximian has to flee to Constantine's court. Galerius, at this point, pretty much throws his hands up in the air. He calls a conference. He brings Diocletian out of retirement. He calls for Maximian. They're old friends, right? And it's determined in this conference, what they're going to do. So, here's what they decide. They're going to appoint a new emperor, Licinius. Galerius is a longtime friend, once again, just like Severus, and he would be the Augustus of the West. Constantine would be the Caesar in the West. Galerius is still Augustus in the East, and Maximinus Daza, still a Caesar. Maximian is supposed to retire, and Maxentius is illegitimate. He's a usurper. Well, think about that. 
no one's going to take that lying down, are they? It's up to the five other emperors to try to sort things out. Licinius's main job is to remove Max Inches. Maximinus is trying to get stronger in his position over there. And Maximian, well, his only hope is in somehow working with or getting control of Constantine's troops. In 310, Maximian, with really no other option to be emperor, you know, no other option to stay out of retirement, decides to rebel against Constantine, tries to take Constantine's army, an army Constantine gave him to defend from some attacks. So either Constantine is just really trusting or he knew the troops were in his camp. He has to flee to Marseille. There he's captured. The city actually gives him up when Constantine comes down with his army. Constantine says, commit suicide. Maximian commits suicide. And then there were five. Then, 311, Galerius dies from a disease he's had. And then there were four emperors. But when he dies, that removes the last check, really, from the Diocletian system. It basically means outright war. There's nothing to keep these four emperors from working together or choosing to whittle it down a few so they can get more power. And what the four decide is they really want two. Maximian and Maxentius form an alliance. Constantine and Licinius team up. Licinius actually marries a half-sister of Constantine. They have a son, so that alliance looks pretty airtight there. Maxentius and Constantine prepare for war. In 312, Constantine takes the initiative and preemptively attacks. He crosses the Alps. He defeats an army in northern Italy and Turin, and then he marches to Rome, where Maxentius is. Maxentius settles down for a siege, even though technically his army outnumbers Constantine's, almost two to one there, or around about. Even with that military advantage, though, Maxentius is actually in a weaker spot than Constantine. Constantine has more loyalty from the people of Rome and Italy altogether. Apparently, Maxentius wasn't well-liked. Hard to like this guy. He was also illegitimate. And when the conference cut him off there, they cut him off from tax revenues of the empire. And so for him to maintain an army, he had to raise taxes on the Romans Remember, that was one of the big reasons why the Romans even selected him as an emperor to avoid the tax hikes, and now they have to live with it. So he's not popular. His dream is dying. And compared to the other emperors, he's actually in the weakest place because he's not popular. Constantine, on the other hand, very popular. There are Italian cities in the north that basically welcome him, congratulate him on the victories. So Maxentius settles down for the siege. He's cut off all the bridges. And then he does something different. He goes out and decides to meet Constantine in the battlefield. Of course, you have to wonder why. Why does he do that? Well, some people, some historians think that the population egged him on. Others think that Maxentius could see that Constantine was winning all over northern Italy and really that there was no other hope but to go out and meet him in battle. It was probably both. I don't see how you can win an empire or the hearts of the people by playing defense. 
So he goes out to meet Constantine, nine miles north of Rome, with his back to that Tiber River. And this is a bad place to form a battle line, because now if you need to retreat, it's impossible. There was only one bridge now, and that was one boat bridge that they made. You know, they had taken all the bridges down for the siege, right? And so they basically have one tiny path of escape in case they need. And this is the background behind one of the biggest turning points in mankind's history. These two armies camped out opposing each other on October 27th. On that afternoon, something happens that if you believe the records, it was supernatural. And if you don't believe the records, well, then it probably looks like an expedient explanation for a naked power grab. This history comes to us from Eusebius. Eusebius is a Catholic writer. He absolutely adores Constantine. Even he knows this sounds incredulous. He says that while Constantine marches to Rome, he's contemplating events in his life. He's contemplating about the outcome of all these other emperors, realizing that they worshiped pagan gods and that those gods must not exist because his emperors were losing. And he, on the other hand, was doing great. In this march, Eusebius says he decides to worship the God his father did, the Catholic God. While he had been thinking and praying about it, well, here's how Eusebius puts it. Quote, This God he began to invoke in prayer, beseeching and imploring him to show him who he was and to stretch out his right hand to assist him in his plans. As he made these prayers and earnest supplications, there appeared to the emperor a most remarkable divine sign. If someone else had reported it, it would perhaps not be easy to accept. But since the victorious emperor himself told the story to the present writer a long while after, when I was privileged with his acquaintance and company and confirmed it with oaths, who could hesitate to believe the account, especially when the time which followed provided evidence for the truth of what he said? About the time of the midday sun... When day was just turning, he said he saw with his own eyes up in the sky and resting over the sun a cross-shaped trophy formed from light and a text attached to it which said, By this conquer. End quote. That night, Eusebius records, Constantine dreamed that a voice commanded him to have his soldier mark their shields with the letter X, with a line drawn through it and curled around the top. This was seen as a symbol of Christ. And so on the morning of October 28th, he had his soldiers put that mark on their shields. Christians fighting there would have been happy. But there are still a lot of pagans. But the pagans didn't mind either. They were mostly a part of a sun cult called a Mithras cult. And they were fighting a lot of times under the Mithric Cross of Light. These symbols looked pretty similar. Constantine wasn't the only one trying to get gods on his side. The same day, the signs are going up on Constantine's smaller army. Maxentius consults the keepers of the Sibylline books about his prospects. These books are like a pagan oracle. And it happens to be the six-year anniversary of his reign, to the date. And they tell him that the enemy of the Romans would die. So he's pretty happy. But it's one of those classic statements that are just too wonderful, too good not to mention, right? Even though you know it's made up. 
who is the enemy of the Romans? Well, doesn't that depend on who you root for? And right now, more Romans were rooting for Constantine. So Constantine has his army with the cross on their shields, and Maxentius displays the banner of the unconquerable sun, signed from that Mithras cult. Constantine lines up his troops to oppose Maxentius's troops. Once again, Maxentius's troops, they have their backs to the Tiber River. And the battle starts. And it's almost over from the very start. Constantine's cavalry and infantry charge. They break through Maxentius's troops. Maxentius's troops fall back. They retreat. They panic. They're pushed into the Tiber River where thousands of them are drowning to death easily picked off by Constantine's troops. Maxentius flees. He tries to cross that bridge, but there's so many troops fleeing that the mass of their bodies just push him over the bridge. He drowns to death. The battle ends. Constantine enters Rome. He's welcomed as a hero. Another emperor is crossed off in this battle arena for the control of the Roman Empire, and Constantine is now the undisputed master of the West and he holds the symbolic city of Rome. This is a huge victory for Constantine. He's achieved the same power as his father. He started basically as an illegitimate emperor, becomes a legitimate emperor, destroys his enemies, and now he's set. He's more secure than he's ever been before. But it's a bigger victory for the Roman church. Remember, when the state persecution was raging against those who claimed to follow Christ, both the true Christians and the false, Constantine's father was the least oppressive. He only burned a few churches and left it at that. Some claim that Constantine's mom was actually converted to Christianity after she was put away. So, and there's debate whether or not Constantius was a Christian, but basically we know that Constantius and Constantine were both friendly to the religion. Constantine at this time was a sun worshiper, though. He, his court was pagan, but he could recognize his opportunity as he gained control of Rome. Durant writes, quote, He had seen in his lifetime the failure of three persecutions, and it was not lost upon him that Christianity had grown despite them. Its adherents were still very much in the minority, but they were relatively united, brave, and strong, while the pagan majority was divided among many creeds and a dead weight of simple souls without conviction or, or influence. Christians were especially numerous in Rome under Maxentius and in the East under Licinius. Constantine's support of Christianity was worth a dozen legions to him in his wars against these men. End quote. There was opportunity. There are more Roman Christians supporting Constantine than Maxentius. They believed Constantine was a better protector of the Catholics. What better way for Constantine to establish himself in the West and show even more sympathy for a religion gaining more popularity. And it wasn't just in this part of the empire. Constantine had bigger aims. Durant writes, quote, Constantine aspired to an absolute monarchy. Such a government would profit from religious support. The hierarchical discipline and ecumenical authority of the church seemed to offer a spiritual correlate for monarchy. Perhaps that marvelous organization of bishops and priests could become an instrument of pacification, unification, and rule. End quote. Now, Durant puts that last line in the form of a question, trying to put us in Constantine's place and in his time. For today, the answer was an obvious yes. 
So now there are three emperors left. Maximinus Deza is the weakest one. Licinius, who had previously worked with him, decides to move against him now in 313, defeats him. Maximinus flees. He dies a few months later from a disease. And then there are two emperors left, Constantine and Licinius. And they work together at the start. Remember, they're married into each other's families. One of the things they do at this time that's remembered well is the Edict of Milan in 313. This edict declares toleration for all religions, but its goal is to end Christian persecution. The whole empire now sees Constantine as the Christian champion. Of course, this cooperation between Constantine and Licinius could not last. They've whittled it down now to two, and why would they cooperate when if they can defeat the other, they would have it all? And they eventually go to war. Constantine just, he just seems to know when to act. He launches an attack against Licinius in Eastern Europe. He wins, adds more territory to his part of the empire, deprives Licinius of some of his territory. Licinius gets upset, takes out his wrath by removing the edict in his part of the empire and persecuting Christians in the east again. Barbarians invade in the east. Constantine uses this as an example to bring his army into Licinius' territory. He beats back the barbarian invaders, and he has this army that he confronts Licinius with. And they meet each other. Constantine, the Christian champion, with 130,000 men against Licinius, the defender of paganism, with 160,000. The two even encouraged the Roman Empire to see this clash in religious terms. It was not just for empire. It was a clash between the gods. Twice they fought. Twice Constantine won. Licinius was spared. Constantine became the sole emperor in 312. Later on, he did execute Licinius for trying to rebel. Finally, there was one emperor, Constantine. He wasted no time ending Licinius' persecution of the Christian churches. Constantine finally declares himself a Christian, and he encourages all of his subjects to convert. Once again, the Catholics become a big winner from Constantine's victory. And it's important to note that there's still a minority at this point in time. Constantine's victory and support of the Catholic Church will lead to a transformation of the empire. It will change Western civilization forever. How this change occurs is going to be the topic for the next part in this series. This episode covers a lot of information, and it's built primarily off the works of Herbert W. Armstrong and Joe Fleury. You can go to the show notes to find the books, and those are going to be the ones that talk to you about Bible prophecy and the true meaning of the church-state relationship and the legacy that needs to be remembered. Not the one you get in history books or in your history classes, but the one you get from the Bible. Once again, check the show notes. You can order them for free, and I highly recommend you do. Rewind, Repeat, a history podcast airs on kpcg.fm 
101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on thetrumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.